Our Tribe History, a regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans, and welcome to Our Tribe History, the podcast that examines the history of the Cleveland Indians. I'm your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. So on our last podcast, we were discussing how World War I affected the 1917 and 1918 season. Uh, both of those were not awful seasons for the Indians, but also not great seasons. Uh, Speaker was still having uh, great seasons on his own, but some of the other players were starting to come into their own. And we roll then into 1919. Now, if you know... Anything about the 1919 baseball season, it's probably the Black Sox scandal. And I wanted to incorporate that into this episode just because the 1919 season is just so heavily influenced uh, in history by that that episode in the World Series. So I was lucky enough to get Jacob Pomerenke on the on the phone line for an interview now, if you don't know uh, Jacob, he is on Twitter at Buck Weaver. That's his Twitter handle. And he serves as the director of editorial content at Sabre. Uh, if you look at his Sabre profile, it's it's really impressive. He's been on the a Sabre member since 1998. But what is extremely fascinating about Jacob is he serves as the chairman and the newsletter editor for the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. So if you think to yourself, well, it's been over 100 years. Haven't they sorted everything out about what happened? Guys were guilty. They threw the World Series. Well, the, the long and short answer is no. There's, there's so much to learn. And that's, again, I go back to this as one of the great aspects of baseball is there's so many different areas that you could dive into and study if you're interested. And if you're interested in the Black Sox, hey, there's a, a Sabre group for you. And as the podcast goes on, you'll 
hear from Jacob as well as uh, give him a chance to kind of lay out other um, resources if you are interested in the Black Sox. Even if you're an Indians fan, how could you not be uh, interested in in that particular World Series? Also, uh, I was just brought to my attention by my uh, editor or my wife that I haven't actually spelled out what Saber is. I just kind of assumed everyone knew what Saber is, which is not good on my end. So Saber is the Society of American Baseball Research, and it it as it sounds, covers the history of baseball. And there's just so many different avenues or uh, different um, um, areas you can study. I mean, baseball cards, ballparks, particular games, Black Sox, the list goes on. And it's a a really unique group in Cleveland. You can join the Jack Graney chapter. I'm a member of that. We, um, you know, have um, a lot of, of, I don't know, not monthly, but presentations and get-togethers, whether they're at baseball games or at the Cleveland Public Library. There's a lot of opportunities to get with other like-minded baseball fans. And you don't have to be the most hardcore baseball fan in the world, so you don't need to feel intimidated. You can join and listen to a lot of these presentations. Uh, We've even had John Thorne, Major League Baseball historian, at some of our presentations. So... I urge you to become a member of, of Saber. It's a wonderful resource for baseball history fans. So as January 1919 rolls around, the world war is over. But if your manager leaves full, you're always on edge, especially when you, you realize the situation. And I'm not sure how normal it was for a manager to always kind of have his job in question. So on the January 4th plane dealer, there was a headline Manager of the Cleveland Indians will be named today. Jim Dunn holds conference with Speaker and and Lee Full. Um, So it's not necessarily the biggest vote of confidence that you could get that your job is still kind of, well, are you going to be manager this year or do we want to go in a different direction? Uh, But nevertheless, it was agreed upon that Lee Full would be the manager for the 1919 season. And one of the big questions is, what's going to happen to Brago Roth? In that same article, it said, if Speaker is named manager, Bobby Roth will maybe withdrawn from the trading market. But if Fole continues as chief, Roth is sure to go. As Lee has positively declared, Roth cannot stick if he is to run the team. Dunn received several offers for Roth in the way of players, but accepted none of them saying yesterday it might be some time before he did take any steps to arrange a trade for the star outfielder. Now, when Full was named manager of the club, he penned a nice little uh, letter to Cleveland fans in the paper, and he said, In starting my fourth season as manager of the Indians, I do not want to make any rash promises. We have a strong ball club in a league composed almost entirely of powerful teams. The boys on the team are eager to bring a pennant to Cleveland, And if we continue to fight as hard as we have been the last three years and have an even break in the luck, our chances for a successful season are very bright. I wish at this time to thank the Cleveland fans for the support they have given the team. As such, support was an endorsement of our work, an indication that they believe we were out there doing our best, which was the case. So Lee feels he has the fans on his side and he feels obviously they have a great team, which they do on paper. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you got... Tris Speaker, you got Kovaleski, you got Bagby, Wambi, uh, Ray Chapman. I mean, it's it's a pretty solid team with Steve O'Neill behind the plate. And as mentioned before, since Lee Full was still the manager, 
Brago Roth's future was uh, rocky at best. And you start to see rumors uh, circulate. In January 17th, there was a report that Connie Mack offered four players for Brago and Joe Evans. Uh, so Dunn was kind of evaluating the trade and mentioned that Mack was willing to trade Larry Gardner, Elmer Myers, and Charlie Jameson in exchange for those two other players. Now, nothing immediately materialized after that report, but it was out there. Um, by early February, it was noted that George Uli uh, was going to become a, a member of the Cleveland Indians. He was actually pitching on a, a local team, uh, the Standard Parts Champion Baseball Team of the area. So, uh, again, a local Sandlot team. And Uli was from the Cleveland area, so he was a local boy and uh, if you were reading the paper, you'd probably be pretty excited about seeing one of the, the local boys done good. Things were returning back to normal from the war, and there were still guys stuck over in Europe. Elmer Smith was back in, in the United States, and he was in the paper saying, I worked hard until the armistice was signed, but from then on, I had things pretty easy and him soft as a result. So Elmer knew he had his work cut out for him if he was going to become a regular on the Indians team. And then comes March 2nd, 1919, when it was reported that the trade with uh, Connie Mack's ball club ended up going down. It was Brago Roth for Larry Gardner, Elmer Myers, and Charlie Jameson. And this was a very lopsided trade in favor of Cleveland. Charlie Jameson would go on to play 14 seasons in Cleveland and become a fan favorite and a stalwart of the ball club from here on out. The paper mentioned that Brago had his issues with uh, with Leifold. It said he was temperamentally unable to play his best for Cleveland last season, and odds are it probably would have carried over again into the current season. And at the time, Connie Mack was pretty excited about it. He said, I hope Cleveland gets good service out of Gardner, Myers, and Jameson. In fact, I will be surprised and disappointed if it doesn't. I wanted Roth and was willing to give three players for him. That's all there is. The story with Brago, though, he ended up playing 48 games with Philly and in 1921 finished with 43 games in New York. The first paragraph of his Sabre bio written by Dan Holmes kind of encapsulates uh, everything about Brago. It said, Bobby Roth, sometimes called Brago, was an often insufferable self-promoter who bounced around among six American League teams in the years surrounding World War I and was on the wrong side of two of the most lopsided trades of the dead ball era. A player with diverse skills, Roth won a home run title and also stole home as many as six times in a season. But he was hampered by what one source called, quote, the unhappy faculty of gaining enemies, apparently with cold deliberation. Now, one of my favorite stories, though, about Brago was uh, after Tyler Naquin had his Inside the Park walk-off home run in 2016, we wanted to look to see who was the last Indians player to accomplish such a feat, and it turns out it was Brago. So I remember coming across that newspaper um, in the Plain Dealer archives and uh, one of those connecting generation moments. It was one of those addition by subtraction trades. The the tribe not only got rid of Brago and his uh, harsh personality, but gained three players that were going to hopefully contribute towards the team. 
And one of those players that the tribe got back was Elmer Myers and was possibly one of the reasons why the trade was held up as Jim Dunn gave Connie Mack until April 1st to see if Myers was going to return from France as he was serving during World War I. But as spring training was getting near, Dunn just decided to take the gamble and close the trade with uh, with Connie and got it all settled. And it was reported it is now up to, to Dunn to get Myers back in time. Now, it wasn't going to be easy for the tribe to get Elmer back. He'd actually been gassed during the war. And in a later news clipping, it was mentioned that it was only a few weeks before the armistice in 1918 when fate dealt its cruel blow to Myers. Elmer, at the time, was a stretcher bearer attached to the evacuation hospital number 15 of the American Expeditionary Forces at Verdun. And while he was at the front lines, there was a German gas barrage and he couldn't adjust his mask in time. And he choked his lungs and seared his abdomen, and he spent weeks in a base hospital undergoing treatment. He was finally returned to the U.S. where he was discharged. And actually, it said he was there when he learned he was traded to the Indians for that 1919 season. He went on to say, The effects of the gas were not noticeable immediately after I returned to baseball. However, I continually lost weight and tired greatly when I pitched nine or more innings. I needed more rest to recover my strength between games than I did before the war. I visited specialists, and they told me pitching was too strenuous for a man in my condition and said I would have to go quit, but got by for seven years in the minors before I finally gave up. And as it got closer to spring training, Jim Dunn and the Indians really didn't have any issues signing guys to contracts. Uh, Dunn even mentioned that the guys that were still over the overseas uh, was going to welcome them back with open arms. And once they were mustered out of service. And also in March, the Indians got a new trainer, a guy named Percy Smallwood. And if you look at a photo of the 1920 world champ team, you'll see a kind of, he always looks sad or kind of almost scary in the corner. Uh, that's Percy. He's a, apparently a famous middle distant runner and he had bounced around after his competitive days were over, finally becoming the, the trainer for the club. And I just think he's an interesting character. Um, and you know, how often do the, the trainers get mentioned in stories? They're kind of at the sides of things. But, you know, he's a guy that interacts with all the players. And for this spring training, seems to be somewhat colorful. He gets mentioned a few times. One of those stories happened to be uh, when he appeared at spring training in his regulation running suit at the close of a practice. And they he challenged about 12 of the players to a relay race around the park, uh, so 12 laps around. And he ended up beating the, the, the club made of Bagby and <clears throat> Elmer Smith and Ray Chapman and Covey and, and Wambi. So a lot of the, the front-line starters were part of this team that challenged Percy but he ended up beating out Smokey Joe Wood by less than a yard. So he really uh, made a kind of a game out of this conditioning and, and ended up beating the Cleveland guys. But not to be outdone, by April 6th, they, the, the, the group of tri players, along with some of the minor league guys, ended up beating Percy at his own game. Now, I don't think there's any sort of uh, shame in that. I mean, if you're going to be competing against 12 other guys or a, a relay of another team, hey... It's uh, all in good fun. And as March 
blood into uh, April, one thing I thought was notable was Tris Speaker accepting the captain position. Lee Fold said, you have been acting as captain for three seasons, Spoke, and I guess it would be better for everyone if you had the title as well as the duties. And from there on out, the Indians actually had several captains in their history. Uh, again, I have to go back and see if Tris was the first or if, if someone else had assumed that role beforehand. But, you know, we haven't had a captain, I don't think, since the 80s. So it's something that just isn't as common as it might have been in the past. And in my interview with, with Jacob, I wanted to know about the White Sox. Obviously, hindsight, we know that the White Sox were the team that was going to win the pennant that year. So I was curious how they went from a team that was kind of middle of the pack in 1918 to a, a World Series contender. Yeah, the 1918 season was mostly about World War One. Um, you know, there were a lot of other things going on in the world, including the uh, influenza pandemic. But uh, but World War One was the major factor that kind of upset the baseball season. And the White Sox were probably more affected than most, I'd say, um, because their star players started leaving uh, in the middle of May. Um, knowing that the uh, draft was the military draft was coming and that they would probably end up, uh, you know, needing to uh, find a job somewhere, either enlisting in the armed services or finding a defense industry job. And so Shoeless Joe Jackson and Happy Felsch and Lefty Williams all left the team early. And that really sunk the White Sox chances, even though baseball was still being played. Um, the White Sox, you know, didn't have their star players anymore. So uh, that was really the, the main reason that they uh, fell into sixth place. And, you know, they still had a championship team. They had won the World Series in 1917. And then, of course, they ended up winning the pennant in 1919. So they still had that core uh, of talent. But it all left. they all left the team uh, in the middle of the season, 1918. And that really just sunk the uh, White Sox for the rest of the year. And as we mentioned in the podcast before, Speaker was able to get back to the team pretty quickly after the war, and most of the the core group was was ready for spring training. There were a few guys, obviously uh, the new uh, Elmer Myers and Joe Harris that were still overseas, and a few guys trying to get end their enlistment. But for the most part, the core was there, and it seemed to be pretty similar to the White Sox. They did, yeah. The White Sox ended up getting everybody back. Um, I think there was a couple uh, reserve players and some uh, bullpen pitchers that, that ended up uh, still being in the military um, at the start of the 1919 season. But all their star players were, were back. And it's funny because when the players like Shoeless Joe Jackson and Happy Felsch left the White Sox in 1918, the owner, Charles Comiskey, um, threatened to ban them and not allow them back for the uh, 1919 season um, because uh, he considered them to be unpatriotic because they had not joined the military. They joined the shipyard up in Delaware and Pennsylvania. And so he actually threatened to uh, not take them back. But thankfully his manager, Kid Gleason, uh, talked some sense into him and uh, said, you, you know, you've spent all this time and money uh, putting this championship team together. It'd be a shame if they didn't uh, come back and play it for the White Sox. So he ended up re-signing Shoeless Joe and all the other players. And so they ended up uh, with their, with their core intact uh, from that 1917 championship team team, uh, that came back in 19. And while plans were being made for the season to begin, there was actually a story um, about fans gearing up for opening day 
and uh, a Reuters Club. So there's a really famous group in Boston, the Royal Reuters, and I'm always fascinated by these groups of fans of this era where, you know, it was probably akin to a, a soccer group, the way that they're so tight and have all these chants. Um, but for opening day, the mayor of Cleveland was getting this group of fans together to go to Detroit for the opening day, and it was mentioned in the, the paper that if a fan gave $15, he would get a ticket for the game and a spot on the boat. They took a boat from Cleveland to Detroit for the opener and back, which was how the team traveled. Nowadays, we've done fan buses from Cleveland to Detroit. I would be terrified of taking a boat. That's just me personally. Um, but nevertheless, for $15, you could get a boat ride and a ticket to the game, and you would stay at the Hotel Statler in Detroit, and then you would leave the, the night after the game and return home, and it mentioned in time for breakfast, and then you could go to work, which I'm already exhausted thinking about that, but it was just one of those opening day uh, experiences that is is fun to imagine being around in 1919 and participating in something like that. And a real quick story, too, before the season got started. The the tribe actually was helpful in putting out a fire. They were at the ballpark. It was a Heinemann ballpark in uh, in New Orleans. And the clubhouse had caught on fire The where the New Orleans players had played. Apparently, the stovepipe had gotten hot and the wall and ceiling were in flames. And the alarm was given, but the fire department was... 10 minutes out and as it arrived the Indians were actually putting out the flames and wouldn't you know it Tris Speaker was leading the group with a a bucket brigade that climbed upon the roof and Jack Graney grabbed a garden hose and connected it and dashed into the the blazing room so what a way to end spring training with a, uh, a, a clubhouse fire and the guys all getting together and putting it out it's quite the uh, the team building activity i guess it's, it's one way to put it and with any season there's always the predictions and for the cleveland paper uh, hank edwards the writer and the plane dealer his prediction of the season was putting boston in first washington in second new york in third then he said Cleveland, uh, Chicago, and Detroit would be battling for fourth, fifth, and sixth place, leaving the Browns uh, and the uh, uh, Athletics to kind of round out the bottom. So the hopes weren't high, at least according to the local paper. However, I was curious to know about the Chicago predictions. Yeah, you know, nobody really predicted the White Sox to dominate, and and they really did not dominate uh, the American League that year. They only... Uh, won the pennant by a few games. They only won 88 games that year. So, um, you know, this kind of myth that's grown up around the Black Sox that they were one of the, you know, greatest dynasties in baseball. And and it's possible that they could have become that. Um, but going into the 1919 season, nobody really thought that. They, you know, certainly were a very good team, but so were the Red Sox. And the the Indians had been good for a couple years ever since acquiring Trish Speaker. So they were in the running. And uh, even the Yankees were, were decent and the Tigers were decent with Ty Cobb. So um, there, it was kind of a, a mix of teams and nobody was really running away with it uh, in the preseason predictions. So the White Sox were mostly picked uh, to finish about third place in the standings. And, you know, they did have a good team. And if they all came back healthy and played well, then there was certainly a chance that they could win the pennant. But I don't think anybody uh, really even, you know, in Chicago thought that the White Sox were going to dominate. 
So before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of the 1919 Indian season, obviously we didn't win a World Series that year. We didn't play in the World Series that year. So it's it hopefully isn't a spoiler that uh, by the end of this podcast, this episode at least, you know, you're not surprised. Wait, we didn't win anything in 1919. Uh, so uh, spoiler alert, we don't. Um, but I did want to know, you know, what made this White Sox team tick, you know, what made him special. And when you have an expert in that particular season, that particular team on the phone line with you, you might as well ask. Well, you know, the two star pitchers, Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams, had absolutely tremendous years. I mean, the best years of their careers. And so they were the ones that the White Sox counted on uh, to keep them going. And and as other pitchers like Red Faber, uh, future Hall of Famer, um, you know, he got injured and he actually uh, had a touch of the flu early in the season, too. And so that kind of knocked him out. Seacott um, and Williams kind of picked up the slack for the White Sox and they just they dominated. And Seacott went on a long winning streak early in the season and uh, Lefty Williams, uh, I think, won 10 games by the end of June. So. It was, uh, you know, the top two aces that they had were really the, uh, the catalyst to make them go. And they also had a, uh, a well-rounded offense. I mean, one through eight in the order uh, was, was very, very good. And Kid Gleason was a manager that uh, did not like platooning. He, he liked putting his top eight in the lineup every day and penciling them in and uh, not changing that if he could help it. So other than injuries and uh, Chick Yandel's suspension, which we'll talk about a little bit later um, after a fight with Chris Speaker, uh, Gleason ended up trying to write in the top eight players in his lineup uh, as often as he could. So they, you know, benefited mostly from good health and, and those two great starting pitchers. And the 1919 season opens with great fanfare. There's this wonderful full page article in the plane dealer. I'll, tweeted out or put it on our blog that has uh, sketches of four Indians players and just talks about how baseball is back and the stage is set for baseball's comeback. Fans are excited. We open up in Detroit and lose that game. And then we open up back at home against Detroit and lose that game. But uh, the fanfare was there. They were hopefully selling record amount of tickets Ended up 16,000 showed up to that home opener. They mentioned that the Detroit fans came in droves, much like the Cleveland fans went to Detroit. Uh, And that included the famous Dodge Brothers band of 70 pieces. And it mentioned a Cleveland band. So the ball games of of this era would just be great to be a fly on the wall. I mean, could you imagine being in a ballpark with two bands that are, you know, it's like a high school football game with bands on both sides. It would just be a a pretty wild experience, but nevertheless, uh, uh, it wasn't the, uh, the season that Tris speaker and gang were hoping for. And as Jacob mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if I'd call it a highlight of the 1919 season, but one of the um, the situations of the 1919 season was a uh, a fight between Tris Speaker and uh, Chick Gandel, one of the the several uh, former tri players now playing for the White Sox. Gandel was sent to the White Sox. Uh, the Indians had uh, Luis Guisto, who was a, a first baseman that they felt could hold the bag down until. Uh, 
or then they didn't need need chick anymore and and for for probably a lot of reasons they didn't need him <laughs> so Gandal was uh, a really interesting character he was kind of this rough and tumble uh player he had come up from the old copper mines in arizona and california um and so you know he was uh he, he really never backed down from, from a fight or from uh, anyone in, in baseball. And so he was one of the leaders on the team. He kind of led this faction of this, you know, hard nosed uh, group of players and Buck Weaver and Swede Risberg and Shoeless Joe were in there. Um, and so Gandal was one of the leaders on the team and, and he was actually a, a great acquisition for the White Sox because uh, that was the one position at first base that they uh, did not have a lot of success. Um, early before Gandal uh, came to the team in 1917. And as soon as he got to the team, he kind of solidified that position for them and a nice uh, solid hitter in the lineup and uh, helped them win the World Series his first year there in 1917. So when he came back in 1919, you know, he was kind of looked at as as one of the leaders of the team. And so this story about him and uh, Trish Speaker at the end of May, uh, May 31st, there was a game at Comiskey Park and Gandal and Speaker had never gotten along, um, going back to their days with Chick Gandal and Washington Senators and Speaker with the Boston Red Sox. They had never really gotten along, and uh, they were both very intense players, very kind of hard-nosed, uh, you know, again, who were not uh, shy about backing down. And uh, during this game at Comiskey Park in Chicago, um, Speaker uh, slid into first base. He hit a ball, and he uh, tried to slide into first base, and he, uh, Chick Gandal took exception to this and uh, started uh, yelling at him. And when Speaker came back out to take his position in center field, uh, Gandal started screaming at him and took a swing at him. And uh, Speaker uh, fought back and, and it turned out to be a pretty one-sided fight. Speaker was kind of the, the Nolan Ryan to uh, Chick Gandal's Robin Ventura, um, according to all the reports about this fight. And uh, Speaker kind of beat him up pretty bad and, uh, According to legend, the White Sox players uh, did not always get along with Gandal, and so they kind of stood around and let Tris Speaker uh, have his way with Gandal. So that was uh, an interesting sidelight to this story. And they ended up both getting uh, ejected from this game and both getting suspended for, I believe, 10 days. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, just, you know, a huge uh, part of this season for both teams and and, uh, very interesting to to see these two players kind of go at it. And in the Cleveland version of the uh, fight, the plane dealer mentions or references the Jack Dempsey fight that was going to happen in July. Uh, this being a precursor to it, and very much the, the synopsis is that Gandal was not thrilled with Speaker sliding into first. He thought he was trying to spike him. Uh, speaker kind of walks away, goes to the bench, but Gandal's still yelling and, and making a scene about things. And after the inning's over, Speaker goes out to center field, but Gandal was waiting for him and made another remark to Speaker that Speaker just couldn't handle and decided he was going to take it on his uh, on his own to settle the score. And from the paper, it mentioned, players and fans rushed to the scene. The belligerents were dragged apart and to their feet, but Spoke broke loose and again knocked Gandal down. This time, he held him down and pummeled him at will. After the battle had lasted three or four minutes and hundreds of fans had gathered around to form a ring, Speaker was dragged off again and led away. 
It was none too soon, as several fans, including firemen, had grabbed bats at the White Sox bench, and Speaker might have, might have been seriously injured. As it was, both were bleeding from the mouth, while Yandel's shirt had been torn from his back. Both were put out of the game, and uh, Joe, Smokey Joe Wood ended up going to center field for the Tribe. But fans were actually pretty, uh, pretty much in favor for for Speaker. It said when the game ended, one policeman, who was one third of the police at the park, so there wasn't much of a police presence, along with Manager Gleason of the White Sox and the Indians, surrounded Speaker and acted as his bodyguard en route to the clubhouse. A thousand fans lined up as the squad marched through the human lane that formed, but no one made any effort to attack Speaker or even assault him verbally. In fact, there were scores of spectators who sat near the Cleveland dugout who said that Speaker had been justified in giving Gandal the beating he did, and it was too bad the battle had ended before the Sox first sacker had been knocked out, saying that Gandal ought to be ruled off the diamond for the vile language he yelled to spoke from his position. So it'd be interesting to know what he yelled at Speaker that, that set him off. One of my favorite parts of the story, there was a, a naval officer that was apparently interviewed, and he said, I was glad I did not have a lady with me. Had one been with me, I would have been forced to leave my seat, for Gandal made a megaphone of his hands and let loose with a torrent of vile abuse to Speaker as the latter was seated on the bench. Even the umpire made a comment that Gandal had it coming to him. He said he struck the first blow. I don't blame Speaker for what he did, but it was too bad it had to be upon the diamond in front of a large crowd. The Cleveland writer mentioned, I visited Speaker in the dressing room after the game. His right cheek was bruised where he was struck by Gandal's fist. Last and only blow. His right ankle was cut while there was a scratch upon his left bicep. The last two wounds being inflicted by Gandal's spikes while Spoke had him down, hammering him. So it seemed to be a pretty one-sided fight. Speaker's response was, When I slid into first base, I merely did what Jackson did twice before in the game. I had no thought of injuring Gandal. I got up, dusted off my uniform, and he followed me a few steps to call me more vile names than I'd ever been called before. He called me names that no man could stand for. And when I started for center field, I made up my mind to challenge him to a battle beneath the stands after the game. I thought he had too much sense to start anything upon the ball field, and both hands were at my side when he suddenly whipped his left over and hit me on the cheek. He also said, I am sorry there was a fight in public, but I had to defend myself, and once I got started, I couldn't stop. It was the first fight I had since I'd been playing baseball, and I scarcely knew how to act at first. But I was going to show him that he was no badder this time, and I guess I did. Probably, he thought, because he was 15 or 20 pounds heavier, he could whip me, but he guessed wrong. And to go along with what Jacob said, Lee Foles' statement said, What surprised me was the disposition of the players to let them go. All of our fellows formed sort of a ring to see that Spoke had fair play and that Gandal got his desserts, and when the White Sox came rushing up, they did not appear to be any more eager than we to have the fight ended. So clearly the White Sox players really weren't interested in uh, getting involved and helping out their uh, first baseman. Also, during that game, poor Jack Graney was getting bottles chucked at him from Chicago fans. He had been protesting uh, Seacott and his use of the shine ball and was booed by the left field bleacherites. Uh, and when he, he mentioned when he went back out to his position, there were 20 bottles thrown at him. So... Again, poor Jack Greeny 
dodging bottles for his life. I mean, you get hit in the head with a, a glass Coke bottle, and it, I'm sure it's not pretty. And towards the mid-season, the tribe was was still battling for first place, um, but never really offered a, a challenge. They always seemed to be about five or six games back. Um, but in July of 1919, the tribe was leading the White Sox in a game. They were up 7-3 to three going into the ninth, and it was the, the tail end of the Red Sox order. So the paper had mentioned fans were leaving. They thought they had this thing wrapped up. Um, just a, a side note, never leave a game early. Always stay for that last out because you really never know what's going to happen. And this was one of those games because most of the fans thought, well, Babe Ruth isn't going to get up, so they're going to end this game. They're up by uh, by four runs. What's the big idea? And in the ninth, Lee Full went to his bullpen. Elmer Myers, one of the gentlemen in that, that earlier trade, came in, got an out. And then things started to unravel a bit for the uh, for the Indians as guys started to get on base. A run scores, and then next thing you know, actually, wouldn't you know it, you get Babe Ruth with the bases loaded. And who does Leafle go to but a pitcher who hadn't pitched in a, a couple of months, just coming off the uh, the injured list. Um, hopefully I don't say his, his name, last name wrong. I think it's Combe. Um, but Full came out and said, pitch every ball in the dirt if you have to, but keep them below his knees. The report of the game says he put everything he had on that first offering and Ruth put every ounce of his strength into a terrific swing that missed the ball by inches. Ruth whirled all the way around in his effort. So then Steve O'Neill walks out to the bullpen or walks out to the, the mound and says, don't pitch another as high as that one, Fred, or this bird will knock it out of the lot. Keep it low. And uh, what do you? What would you guess that he ended up doing? It was reported that Fred got the hunch that a slow ball was going to be Ruth's weakness. The babe hit his pitch. It said high up in the air. The ball sped, but with phenomenal leverage imparted to the blow by the batsman, it did more than acquire the altitude record for the day. It sailed with great speed high over the right field screen and dropping on the back end of one of the houses on the opposite side of the street disappeared from view of those in the upper deck of the grandstand. Ruth followed his three teammates across the plate with the run that won the game. And Cleveland tried to make it a game by the end. They had, uh, I believe, Speaker on second, but uh, just couldn't get it done. Gardner popped out to the catcher, and Wambi grounded out to shortstop. So that set the uh, Tribe five and a half games behind the White Sox. And... Uh, it also happened to be the last straw for Lee Foles' managing career as a, the Cleveland Indians manager. In the paper the next day, it mentioned Lee Foles resigns as manager of the Indians. Tris Speaker is the new boss of the club. That's that the Indians have a new manager. Lee Foles has been removed, and Tris Speaker will have charge of the tribe for the remainder of the campaign. Speaker's appointment will strike a popular chorus for fans who have wanted him as manager for the last two seasons, as they believe he has it in him to succeed where no, where so many managers have failed uh, in giving Cleveland a pennant winner. The reasoning for Full to leave, at least according to the paper, was that the fans had been dissatisfied with him for a few weeks, and he claimed the fans did not uh, necessarily bring about his retirement but indirectly they did. He said, I have failed to win the confidence of the fans, although I've done my best to make the club a winner. I want you and Cleveland to have a winner, but if the fans think you ought to have someone else running the team, I think I should step aside. 
In a later newspaper, Full actually mentioned that the homer wasn't the actual reason he was fired. He said, Dunn was under a lot of pressure from the fans who wanted Tris Speaker to manage. I agreed to step out, and we both were waiting for some incident that would enable Dunn to make the change. Ruth supplied it. So again, that was according to uh, Lee Full uh, years later after the incident. And when you start to dig into Lee Foles' managerial career at the Indians, it's kind of amazing he he lasted that long. Uh, when uh, Birmingham was fired as manager of the club, the plain dealer had mentioned one of the reasons for the dismissal given by Summers to Birmingham was that he antagonized the fans and newspapers by advertising that Morton would pitch Saturday and then failing to pitch him. Birmingham admitted he had blundered, but his excuse was only that 2,000 fans were on hand Saturday and that he wanted to help out his employer financially by saving Guy for the Sunday game. Uh, Charlie Summers says he has no successor to Joe Birmingham in mind. Lee Full, former minor league manager who has been acting as coach of the Indians pitchers, has been placed in charge temporarily. Full will manage the team for the present, Summers said last night, and I will look after the management more myself than I have in the past. Two heads may be better than one, and one reason why Birmingham was not successful was that he had no board of strategy to aid him. I have no one in mind to succeed Joe. Naturally, I cannot tell who will be the next manager, as I do not myself know. So Lee Full goes into this with uh, an owner that wants to be part of the managerial process, which seems to be somewhat of a strike. And again, that's taking place in 1915. And in July, the paper had a story that said, Indians rapidly becoming joke of the big league club has won only one of the last 10 games and 10 of 33 since Fole became manager. So again, not a ringing endorsement. And when Fole becomes manager, uh, the plain dealer has this in the, the story. It calls him a minor leaguer, busher catcher who never played as a big leaguer. So, again, not the, the, the best endorsement, although Lee did play five games in, uh, in the major leagues. But he actually had, I mean, success with the club. Uh, 1918, obviously, finishing second. When he was dropped uh, in 1919, they were 44 and 34. But nevertheless, when you have the possibility of having Tris Speaker as player manager, I guess the temptation is just a bit much. And towards the end of the 1919 season in August, the Indians pick up a pitcher who, uh, to say he is colorful, I guess maybe would be an understatement, but Ray Caldwell, who had a lot of success with the Yankees, but he also had um, issues in terms of alcoholism, and he would would just kind of disappear from the, the club. So again, a guy that had immense talent, but also had his vices, but nevertheless, the Indians took a chance on, on Caldwell, and it paid off quite a bit. Now, there's a story, and it appears in his Sabre bio. It comes from Franklin Lewis's Cleveland Indians book. And it's one of those stories that sounds pretty far-fetched. Um, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't want to—I mean, it very well could be true. I, I don't know. It's just— in my gut, it just seems uh, pretty wild. So it it mentioned that when Speaker picked him up, you know he was aware of the of the issues of falling off the wagon. And when Speaker gave him his contract, Caldwell looked at it 
and saw that it said he he must get drunk and not to report to the clubhouse the next day after he he pitches. Um, the second day he is to report to manager speaker and run around the ballpark as many times as speaker stipulates. The third day he is to pitch batting practice, and the fourth day he is to pitch in in his regular start. And Caldwell looks up and says, well, you left out a word, Tris, where it says I've got to get drunk after every game. The word not has been left out. It should read, I'm not going to get drunk. And Speaker smiles and says, no, it says you are going to get drunk. And uh, Caldwell says, "Okay, I'll sign. So, again, it sounds one of those made for TV or made for movies um, stories. But, again, I'm not sure I'm one to question Franklin Lewis, but... Yeah, you, you know, you take it for uh, for what it's worth, I suppose. And when Caldwell appears for the the tribe, his first game is a it's a two to one victory over a County Max team. But the uh, that's not what makes the headlines. It's the fact that with two outs in the ninth, there's a, a storm literally coming into Cleveland and. A lightning bolt strikes the field and, and knocks out Caldwell. I mean, he's struck by lightning, and the, a lot of the other players are also knocked down, including Ray Chapman, who it, it said his his leg was numb and he couldn't really uh, get up right away. So, I mean, you know, going forward, everyone knows Chapman's history and, and getting hit. Talk about the worst luck of all time. Not only do you get struck by lightning, but you get killed by a a, a ball hitting you in the head it's just it's it's, it it boggles the mind to have that bad of a luck and nowadays the game would be canceled but Caldwell got up kind of dusted himself up and uh forced a ground out the game was over and then the rain came out so it's it's just again a a guy was struck by lightning and uh finished the game and along the third baseline uh, on the main concourse of the ballpark, we have a few plaques up. And when we were deciding what to do, we wanted to tell stories of League Park. And one of those stories uh, that I decided to focus on was that of Caldwell. So hopefully while you've been waiting uh, at one of the vendor stands trying to get a hot dog or something, you've had time to read what's on one of those plaques because the story of Ray Caldwell is is on one of those because again it's just one of those stories that seems almost made up but it is most certainly not and then in september of 1919 ray caldwell flirted with a perfect game i believe there was about two players that got on base but outside of that uh caldwell held his own and uh no hit the new york yankees and uh, as someone that's interested in artifacts and the preservation of them, there was a story that caught my eye and it said when Joe Harris made the final out, he grabbed the ball and overtaking Caldwell asked him if he did not want it as a souvenir of the occasion. Caldwell must have been flustered and told him he did not care for it. But later on, he declared most emphatically that he did want it. In the meantime, it had come into my possession. Caldwell has it now and carefully marked it. My first and only no hit game. New York, September 10th, 1919. So I, I really hope that that ball is still preserved somewhere and didn't get used for, you know, a family batting practice or something of that nature. But nevertheless, um, yeah, it's, it's neat to think that maybe that survives somewhere. 
in that 1919 season, once the tribe has been eliminated from winning the, the American League pennant, there's one more game that's extremely consequential to the legacy of uh, Tris Speaker and Ty Cobb. Um, and not something we're going to go into here, but maybe later on, uh, eventually becoming known as the Dutch Leonard Affair. But that game took place on September 25th. And when you read the Plain Dealer account from that game, you, you kind of can put two and two together. But the paper had said they must have had a rule today prohibiting either team from scoring more than two runs an inning. That's why the Tigers defeated the Tribe 9-5 to in the Indians' last road game of the season. Each inning would open briskly, indicating that either team or the other was going to make a nice mess of runs. But when two tallies had been registered, the rally would cease. It did not seem like a real championship game at that. With nothing really at stake, pitchers uh, did not seem to appear to exert themselves, and that batsman simply hit the apple with vigor to unfrequented sections of the ballpark. It was base hit day at Navin Field. The best thing about the contest was its brevity. It started at 3.07 and ended at 4.13, thus making it the shortest game played by either Detroit or Cleveland in several years. It was not a case of hitting at the first ball either. The players just hustled to and from their positions while arguments with the umpire were forgotten for the day. Uh, Again, this game is going to reappear later on in the careers of of Tris Speaker and Smokey Joe Wood and Ty Cobb. So the season ends and the plain dealer mentions players were going to their winter places for the year. Um, Klepfer, Yuli, Chapman, Wambi, Graney, and Smith were all staying in Cleveland. Tris Speaker was actually going to go cover the World Series, the Reds and White Sox World Series. Uh, Wood, Covey, Klepfer, O'Neill, and Harris all purchased land for a hunting camp in New Jersey to build a, a small lodge. And uh, a lot of these guys actually worked in the auto industry as well. Klepfer is a salesman for the Cleveland Packard Company. Smallwood uh, was going to work for the Cleveland Studebaker. And then Jack Graney was going to spend time with the Radiator Company, for which he is one of the owners. But... Uh, nevertheless, uh, I thought it was interesting. Elmer Myers says he intends to take a long vacation to make up for the year uh, while he was his year in France when he was serving in World War One. Jacob actually provides a, a fascinating insight into speakers' coverage of the 1919 World Series. Yeah, you know, one thing that. Uh people don't realize about Trish speaker. He was a really articulate player. He really, you know, knew baseball very well, of course. And he was hired during the 1919 world series, like many players, he was hired by the Cleveland plane dealer and the Boston post um, to serve as a guest columnist during the uh, 1919 world series. And speaker was one of the few uh, newspaper writers at the time of the 1919 world series to be pretty harsh and critical of the White Sox. And he was suspicious of what he was watching uh, during the 1919 World Series. And that's something that uh, really has never gotten too much attention. We had an article in, a, in our Saber Black Sox newsletter by Bruce Allardyce about it a few years ago. But um, there really hasn't been a whole lot of attention paid on uh, the fact that Speaker was watching the White Sox and had, you know, was very familiar with this team, having uh, played against them all season long. And he was very suspicious of the way they were playing, especially the way they were running the bases and fielding. Um, He thought that was something that, uh, you know, did not appear to be, you know, 
the White Sox's regular uh, form during the season. So uh, he was pretty critical, and he put that in print during the World Series itself and, and talking about uh, how the White Sox weren't uh, weren't fielding the way that they typically did, weren't running the bases and making a lot of mistakes. Um, and, you know, he didn't understand why. Nobody quite knew exactly why the White Sox were playing so poorly. Um, but Speaker was pointing out, you know, every day in the, in the plane dealer that uh, this was, you know, something was wrong, something was happening. And he didn't, he didn't know exactly what, but he knew something was up. Um, and so uh, I thought that was really interesting when, when Bruce Allardyce uh, discovered all of these old plain dealer columns that Speaker had written in 1919, that, that he was m- much more critical than most people um, about what was going on. Because, you know, any team, if you're just looking at the box scores or you're j- even if you're watching a game, you know, it's hard to tell when a player's making a mistake intentionally and when it's just an error. Um, players make mistakes all the time. That's baseball. But Speaker, you know, was suspicious almost from the beginning that something was happening and, and uh, he was writing about it too. And I, I've always found that very interesting of, you know, who knew what and, and how early did they know? And, and Speaker seemed to have a, a, an idea that something was going on uh, pretty early on in the 1919 World Series. And to continue on with that, you look at what Speaker wrote and one of those stories, he says, You bet it was a surprise to me, for I was betting that the Sox would grab the first game, and when a man bets that way, he generally thinks it. But the Sox-Cincinnati wallop today did not seem like the same Sox who beat Cleveland out of the pennant. The Chicago team that led us to the wire had Eddie Seacott working like one of the greatest pitchers I had ever seen. Naturally, I hate to knock the team representing my own league in this series, but I do not think that there is a member of the Chicago club but will agree with me in every statement I make, no matter how severely I may seem to handle the American League champions. And in another story, he says, While I am not sure we would beat the Reds, but I can promise you the Indians would put up a better battle than the Sox, there would be more real contests than I have seen in this series. So Speaker did seem to have a beat on things. And relating to this entire scandal is just the what ifs of baseball and what if Cleveland never sent Chick Gandal to the the White Sox, what would have happened? Um, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because the Black Sox scandal was kind of this perfect storm of events uh, after World War One, And you've got this specific set of personalities on the White Sox team and in, inside the clubhouse. And, you know, if, if it had been any different, if different players had been involved, you know, it's hard to say how it all would have gone down. And it's possible that if Gandal had not, you know, been acquired by the White Sox, that none of this ever would have happened. Um, and, you know, if they if they had traded Shoeless Joe to the uh, Red Sox or to the Yankees, as, as some rumors had, had the White Sox doing, um, you know, who knows how this all would have played out. So it's really interesting to kind of think of the what ifs, because the reality is if, if different players had been in that clubhouse, it's very possible that the Black Sox scandal never could have happened. And I want to offer Jacob an opportunity to let fans know uh, if you're more interested in diving into the 1919 White Sox uh, World Series, any other um, sources or, or ways to get involved. Well, I think a, a good starting point to dive deeper into the Black Sox scandal and, and understand all of the new information that's out there, especially in the last 20 years or so, uh, with the power of the internet, 
Um, but the, uh, the eight myths out project that Sabre published, uh, in 2019, I think is a really good starting point to kind of understand really what happened and, and kind of, uh, clear your mind of, of all the old myths that we've grown up believing, uh, through eight men out and other sources, uh, that have kind of repeated this, this story of the, you know, the underpaid White Sox players undereducated and, you know, they were, they were trying to get back at their, their Scrooge of an owner, Charlie Comiskey. Um, that's kind of the uh, the story we've all grown up believing about it. But, you know, we've got a lot of new information out there. And the 8 Myths Out Project puts it all in one place for people to kind of dig deeper and find out all the kind of primary sources that we've uh, come up with and, and a lot of the new research that uh, our Sabre group has been doing and other people um, have been doing over the last 10 or 20 years to kind of fill in the gaps and, and put, you know, new pieces to the story. Cause we've, we understand what happened in 1919 a lot better than we used to. And so we've been trying to fill in the gaps and, and tell that story in a way that uh, helps, helps uh, people understand what really happened. And that brings us to a good stopping point at uh, the end of the 1919 season. Obviously, uh, good things are about to uh, come into the future of the Cleveland Ball Club with Tris Speaker at the helm leading into that 1920 season. Uh, so join us next time on Our Tribe History. You've been listening to Our Tribe History with Indians team historian Jeremy Fedor. 